If you want to use the Bible that's in the chair or pew, uh, it is the same as mine in terms of the numbers and the uh, reading, what we'll read. And it's found on page uh, 1023, 1 John 4, beginning with verse 7. We'll read two passages today, 1 John 4, verse 7. Let us hear the reading of God's holy word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Loved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. Then our second reading is found in a letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus. This is found on page 977. Actually, 78 it starts. 978. Ephesians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 17. <clears throat> Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, 
and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He says put on this new self in the likeness of God and now he spells that out in the verses that follow. What does that mean? Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see the pattern. Put this off, put on this. Put this off, put on that. Again, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as good as is good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's the reading of God's word. May he enable us to live it out in our lives. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that we might understand you in better ways, deeper ways this morning, who you are, what you've been from all eternity, or eternity, and what something of what it means that we are being made into the very image of this God. Lord, bless us that we will be encouraged, that we will have hope, that we will do away with excuses that we will not give in to despair and frustration, but that we will trust you. We will believe in the greatness of your work, your purpose in our lives. And Lord, that we will be a people continually, increasingly marked by love for others because truly we're being made into the image of this God who is love. Bless us, O Lord. For your name's sake we pray. Amen. Looking back in this passage in 1 John chapter 4, the first passage we looked at, it's very interesting because in verse 8, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He's basically saying God's love is so potent, so powerful, so incredibly influential, (laughs) that you can't know him without being transformed by that love. You just, you can't. And if you don't walk in love, you must not know God because he is love and his love transforms those who come to know him. And we learn a a bit, there's, Genesis gives us creation But then John comes along with purposeful language in his gospel, not this letter, but in his gospel, 
that calls to mind creation, but it steps back before creation. So we get a deeper story in John. It's it's answering the question, when you come up to the fence and look over the fence of creation, what's out there? What was going on with God before the world was? And in that beginning chapter, he says, the word that is Christ, John says, was, was God. He was with God. He was related to God. It says later, verse 18, that he was in the bosom of the Father. In this uh, letter, John says, he was with the Father and then he was made manifest to us. So immediately in the revelation of Christ is the revealing of this relationship that was there before the foundation of the world. And Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he speaks of the love that you had for me before the world. He says, you loved me, John 17, 24, before the foundation of the world. He speaks of the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, this is what we think is behind this statement when he says in verse 8, God is love. That it's not, this isn't in the first place a statement of God's attitude toward us. It certainly includes that. But it predates that. It is a statement of what God is, how he operates, you might say. It, it is a statement of the very relationship within God that is love and has always been love. You've heard it, and we've talked about it from the pulpit. Before the foundation of the world was God love, is God love. And, of course, you know those uh, kind of folk uh, descriptions of creation that before the world was, God was lonely and he made himself a world so he had people to talk to, that kind of thing. But before the world began, there was eternal, rich, glorious love Infinite in its happiness, infinite in its fullness. And as we will talk about later, the creation is the brimming out of that love into creation and then ultimately fully into redemption. So the Trinity historically is not an option. It's not, you don't believe in just some God, some God that only has one person within him, a unipersonal God, you might say. That is not God. There's never been a God like that, okay? There isn't a God now. There never has been a God like that. That's an idol of our own making. That's something we came up with, that there is this God who doesn't have three persons within him. We tend to be a little shy about that sometimes. Well, I know the one in three and three in one. I don't know much about it. Let's don't talk about that. You know, just kind of the less we say, the better about that because it's just so confusing. And yet, 
as Michael Reeves in his little book on delighting in the Trinity says, this is the richness and delight and even astonishment and amazement about this God, that he dwells in fellowship. (laughs) This is what makes him the glorious God in everything that he does, this is what makes him so attractive is that he is relationship. In fact, we could argue that a God who never had a relationship for all eternity and was just by himself in that sense is not a great God for entering into a relationship. (laughs) How would he suddenly know how to have a relationship? Why would he even have this relationship? Does he need this relationship? Is he trying to draw something from us in this relationship? Is he a needy God or a God out for self-gratification? Or is he a God who in his very nature spends himself lavishly for one another and this lavish love pours itself out into creation and redemption? Two different gods depending on what kind of God you say. For instance, if you read the Koran, it says at one point, do not use the word or say the word Trinity. God is more glorious than to have had a son. And we say the very opposite. That is God's glory, that from all eternity, he never has been without the son. Therefore, from all eternity, by nature, he is Father, and everything he does is beautified by the fact that he does it as a father. Or you have another God who's not a father. By his nature, this is what he is and who he is as father. And so first, I want to, as I've kind of introduced this whole idea, I want to talk about this interrelationship of the Trinity and then talk about how it affects our view of creation and redemption and how it affects what we think God is going to do in our lives when he makes us into his image. And I'd suggest to you that's pretty central to Christianity, (laughs) that we're being made in the image of God. We read it in Ephesians, right? That you have a new self created in the image of God in righteousness and holiness. We read in Romans 8 that everything's working together for a purpose for every one of us. Every single item in your life is working together for good. And then he says, here's the good that we would finally fully be conformed to the image of his son. Image is everything. In Scripture, to become that image of God. This is what God is doing. So, God is love. It means that each of the persons of the Godhead is open to the other in relationship. It means that each of them is directed to the other. None of them holds on to anything for himself, but gives it away to one another. So that they're given wholly, completely to each other. They're fully transparent. They're fully, they fully interpenetrate each other and indwell each other. 
They speak of their interior life that they share because of their unity in one, into one another. It means, as Stanislaw says, they are perfectly interior to one another. It's interesting, isn't it, how in really good marriages you anticipate in a good way, not in a bad way, like, oh, I know what you're going to say, uh, but you almost are inside each other's heads and you can look across the room and something's being said that's not so good and you just kind of look at each other and there's a little wink. You're like a whole novel is in that wink. Your whole life with each other. Your whole understanding of what humanity is and how it fits into what this person just said and what it means to both of you. It's all there in a wink like that. Because you become kind of interior to one another. Knowing each other's thoughts and knowing each other's feelings. Or a husband can anticipate a situation and know exactly how it's going to make her feel if she were exposed to that. Because he's interior to her. He, he, not, he, he is inside of her head and she is inside of him. Not to use things against each other, but to bless each other and enrich each other. To understand and nurture each other. God is infinitely interior to one another. None of the three ever asserts over the other. They have only regard for the other. They only see themselves in the other. They are self-forgetting. There is, as Torrance says, not only mutual indwelling, but mutual movement, you see, toward each other constantly. This dynamic that C.S. Lewis says, it's anything but static. It's, it's not static. It's not... Uh, uh, stayed, but it's dynamic. It's a pulsating activity. He says, it's like a drama. He says, if I wouldn't be reverent, allow me to say, it's a dance. Eternal dance of encircling one another, orbiting one another, embracing one another. They contain one another. And then they exalt one another. They defer to one another. One writer says there's a divine hospitality as they embrace and make room for each other. From eternity, this is who God is. They harbor the other at the center. A constant movement of overture and acceptance, enveloping, encircling, the other. And so their interior life, by its nature, spins itself lavishly. And so it's not surprising that creation might show itself in the lavish expenditure of God's love. When you see these seeming like a million little fish that are in the ocean just doing this all over. Thousands and thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of fish. You can't believe how many, or you see a whole flock of birds the same way up in the air doing this, and, and a, a massive ground that's covered with them. Just 
the immensity, the repleteness of the billions and billions of creatures. And you realize it's the outpouring of this Trinitarian fullness. Not drawing from, not sucking the life out of creation, but spending itself and pouring itself out for creation. Not to get, as Keller says, not to get joy, but to give joy. That's who God is. It's not something just He does. He is, if we could put it this way, constructed that way. That's who He is. In relationship. Mark and I were coming home from our elder retreat that we had this weekend. And we were on Forest Avenue and going beside this car. And there was a big black dog with kind of, looked like he was a little older, had some fuzz around his nozzle, you know. And you know what he was doing. His head was just hanging out. Ears just flopping in the breeze, kind of a smile on his face, you know, just sitting there with his eyes closed. And I thought, wonder what it's like for that dog when his master says, hey, you want to go riding? Just know he's spinning around, spinning around like our dogs would do. He's jumping up and down. and Yeah, yeah, just I'll wait for you to put the collar on, but I'm getting out of here. You know, he's got his little spot, sits there. Head goes out the window. If the if the window was up, there'd be some barking, you know, some complaining. What's going on? And then their sense of smell is how many thousands greater than ours, you know. So what he's smelling, we can even begin to understand, you know. Oh yeah, uh, uh, mm, mm, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, you know, just all these things that are going through his head as he's smelling stuff by the thousands that we can't even imagine. Right, and that's why I love the far side uh, where it says dogs going to work, and it's a bus, and every dog has his tie on with his head out the window, you know, <laughs> ears flopping, tie flying, you know. I would suggest to you that that beauty of that one single tiny thing of dogness, okay is because of the joy that the Father has in the Son. And we see it burst forth in countless ways, both in creation and in legitimate culture. We just see it shouting out to us. The love of God that has burst forth in the world in creation. You cannot and will not have that view of creation if you have a unipersonal God. It's a different God, different setup. Whyever he makes the world, like the Gnostic God. Their view, and this is not pleasant, but their basic view, as Michael Reeves describes it, is imagine all of spirituality as a room, okay? whole world of perfect spirituality with this one God and spirituality. And then somebody vomits. Bam. And they throw that vomit out of the room. That's creation. That's a Gnostic view of creation. And eventually, thankfully, like a dog going to eat his own, it gets sucked back into and dissolves into the room. 
Do you have creation? End of creation. Nothing good about creation. Creation is not going to stay around. We hate the resurrection because that affirms creation, affirms the body. By all means, no, no resurrection. And some of what John talks about in here is like pre-Gnostic kind of thinking. And he talks about that by the Spirit you confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. But the Antichrist would say, no, that Spirit is not from God. Because it says Jesus, the Spirit, couldn't have come into flesh like that. So it affects everything. It affects how we view everything. If this is a self-centered God who makes the world because he's needy, uh, he makes it out of self-gratification, certainly is not a God who spills his love over to uh, make creation. And so, from this standpoint, uh, being self-centered is a stationary, what Scripture would call a dead position. That we were made in the image of this God, and so we were made for relationship, as Mark has alluded to in his prayer. And the great tragedy and destruction of our very humanity is that we no longer have others at the center of our lives and God especially at the center of our lives and therefore others at the center of our lives. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we have to be delivered from living for ourselves. We've destroyed ourselves. We've folded in, as Luther says, we've turned in upon, curved in upon ourselves. And Satan's uh, temptation is to is that making others the center of your life is no way to get happiness. I would suggest otherwise. Make yourself the center. Let the orbiting be around you. And of course, you got a whole world full of people, each of whom says, no, me, no, me, no, me. The very opposite, the very darkness dark opposite of the light that is God in which everyone in the Trinity is giving themselves away to each other. And so in screw tape letters where the uh, elder demon is, uh, or leader, uh, upper, upper demon is speaking to Wormwood, he says about human beings, he's talking about the, their views, Satan and his hordes view of these human beings versus God's view of these human beings. He says, we want them as cattle so they can become our food. He wants them as servants so that they become, can become his sons. He said, we suck in. He gives out. We are empty and would be filled. He's full and he flows over. And so the enemy just wants you to step into what he's doing. For you to be empty like he is empty. For you to be on the path to destruction like he's on the path of destruction. For you to be committed to emptiness and self-orbiting. Instead of being set free by God. To be like God. So that others become your orbit. And not yourself.
And so, John says here, in this, verse 9, after saying God is love, he then says this about history. Okay, There's this historical thing that happened. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world. And I, I spoke on part of this at Thomas Wormath's uh, ordination last Sunday night. And I gave this illustration, which I'll give to you, that if you take the Mona Lisa and somebody says, well, I'm going to do a sculpture of the Mona Lisa, then you'd expect it to have certain features. You know, it's got the haunting smile, has the eyes, everything's there. But it's just a sculpture view or sculpture form of that same great painting. And in a way, this is what we have in the revelation of God's love. It's, it's had its Trinitarian form from all eternity, right? It's, there's been this self-giving. What is history about except that God preparing the way and finally giving His Son so that, as John says, in this we saw the love of God. We've never seen it, really. Never knew to imagine what it could be. But in this, this Trinitarian self-giving manifested itself in this new sculptural form, so to speak, in this ultimate sacrifice that God would so love us that even as we were sinners, as Paul said, He died for us. Stunning. But this was at the beginning of God's love. This was eternal love that existed within the Trinity and now this brimming love pours itself out and spins itself so lavishly in its sacrifice, even for sinners. And that's the beginning of the change in us, right? The beginning of seeing, as as Paul would describe it in 2 Corinthians 4, the glory of Christ is shown into our hearts. We're blind to it. But he shines it in our hearts, just like he said, let there be light in Genesis. He shines into our heart the glory of Jesus. Or as he says here, and we read in verse 16, because of what God's done in Christ Jesus, we've come to know and believe the love that he has for us. You've heard me say this many times, this passage. And it's the kind of love that makes me even comfortable when I think about judgment. Because judgment has to do with punishment. And I'm so convinced with God's love for me and taking away my sin in Christ Jesus and His commitment to my good, I believe He's going to be committed to my good in judgment day. And I can rest easy. I can rest easy now. He says, when love is perfected like that, when you really understand love and it has hold of your heart, you don't have a fear of punishment anymore. It's like what John Wesley said, that grace has calmed my fears. <laughs> it's, it's my fears are relieved through grace, as he says. And so, as a result of being loved in this way, seeing the free sacrifice of this God for me, 
Paul, uh, John can say in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And see, what, what is that? It's the image of his love. It's being, becoming like this God. As he started earlier, if you don't know, if you don't love, you don't know God. What do you not know about God? You don't really embrace and see and accept and rest in and rejoice in the love that God has shown in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, it's not going to be perfect. It, we, as Brian said, we, we confess sin every week. What are we confessing? We're confessing our lack of love week after week. But what's so good about that confession is we encourage you to be honest with God. You are so loved by God, you don't have to hide your sin. <laughs> You're so loved by God, you don't have to play games with God. He's so dealt with your sin, you can face it honestly. The darkest parts, we hope that this trains you. Confess your sin as you've confessed with us. Because there's no fear of punishment. Because we know and believe the love that God has for us. And we are beginning to love others with something of that love, even though it's just a beginning. And so, as Paul says there in Ephesians 4... There is this new self. It's part of this new creation that I'm now part of with new relationship, a new relationship to God, a new relationship to others, a new relationship to the future because I'll be part of the new heavens and the new earth. And I have this new capacity. Sometimes it's called the new self. Sometimes Paul describes it in Galatians 2 as Christ in me or as Brian began with, or we're the temple of God. The Spirit is in us. The new self is in us. Christ is in us. We have a new capacity, a new life. Or as Jesus said, in your innermost, from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's very interesting because God Himself is this fountain of giving, He says in Jeremiah 2. And what does He create in us? Some kind of little image-bearing fountain of giving that spins itself for others. If that isn't beautiful, what is? All you, every one of you, an oasis. Walking oasis in this dark and desperate desert of a world. How beautiful that God is making you to that. Forming you in the image of this God who is joyfully spending himself within the Trinity and here it is, it's, it almost sounds like it's impossible. This new self is created after the likeness of God. How can it not be? This, this must give us hope that whatever I am, whatever selfishness I bring to the table, whatever brokenness I bring to the table, whatever habits I have, whatever ways of dealing with people, whatever lack of love I feel for people, whatever fears I have about loving people, all of that, yes, it's huge, it's gigantic, but He is a Savior who is remaking me into the image of God. I can expect, and that's why I love Mark's prayer at the end saying, Lord, you promised these things, we expect you. See, we pray like that so you can learn to say, hey, I'm going to pray that. I'm going to pray that about the particular sins and issues I have of loving people. Oh, Lord, yes, 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 I can name all these things. I can face them. Oh, Lord, you 
are making me into the image of God himself. You're restoring my very humanity so that I can be more and more other-centered, even as you are. And it spells itself out in all these ways that he describes about anger and lying and clamor and slander. And, uh, and by being like God, then we're going to be kind to one another. We're going to be tender-hearted and forgiving and compassionate, etc. And so we, we have no excuse anymore, do we? It's, it's wonderful, it's invigorating, but it's challenging. Because I can't wallow in my sin. I mustn't wallow in my sin. I mustn't act in unbelief as though, no, I'm not being made in the image of God. There is no possibility for me to change. No, God is laying hold of us. And this, this is the heart, you see, of our fellowship, our being formed as a community. It's a community of people being made in the image of God. That's what you get to be a part of, only by grace. Because you and I were dead in our selfishness. Absolutely dead. He didn't see anything in us but deadness. And he revived us. And he planted us among others who've been similarly revived and resurrected spiritually. That's what we're part of. To, to build this community and shine forth in light as this community. To be the temple of God. And our glory is what? It's the glory of God. It's the glory of other thinking. It's the glory of self-sacrifice. It's the glory that we even have that joyfully as God does. And then we have a joy in knowing each other and entering into each other's lives and opening ourselves up to each other and being hospitable as the Trinity is hospitable. And letting that spill out and spill out and spill out into this world. Praise be God for what he is doing for us. May he ever, ever, ever bless us. Let us pray. Lord, you alone can lay hold of us. You alone, Lord, make those, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, to raise them up, to seat them with Christ, to become your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus for good, to be like Christ, to be like God. Lord, thank you that you've taken hold of us by your mighty hands. Thank you that you are transforming us as we ever meditate upon the richness of the love of Christ for us. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is about that business of revealing to us the love of God in Christ. That He has poured out in our hearts to communicate that love, as Paul says in Romans 5. That He cries out within us, Abba, Father, to convince us that He is your Father. Trust Him to communicate to us the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, as Paul says in Ephesians 3. Oh, Lord, thank you that this is the bit of the Holy Spirit continually to convince us and deepen us in our embrace and trust in your love so that we in turn are more and more liberated for joyful love to one another and to this world. We rest in that, Lord. We count on you to fulfill the full purpose of your salvation. Amen.